Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Dr Jim Deers not only understands strong neighbourhoods, he helps communities to become them. Jim teaches courses in community organising and development at the University of Washington and serves on the faculty of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute, more easily known as ABCD. And many of you who've been to these conferences before would, have, would remember very fondly a speech by Peter Kenyon, um, who's from that same institute. Jim has a passion for getting people engaged with their communities and in the decisions that affect their lives. So I think he's in very good company in this room. Please make him very welcome. Thank you. It's great to be in Melbourne. Yeah, one of my very favorite cities. Great. Um, but it's also fantastic to be with so many people who share my passion for community. I think there's really two paths to healthy communities. One of those paths is service delivery, and the other path is community building. They're two very different paths. With service delivery, we have agencies. With community building, it's about associations. Service delivery tends to focus on professionals, volunteers, and clients. In community building, we're just all citizens. With service delivery, it tends to be top-down, whereas community building is democratic. Service delivery tends to be one-way, whereas community building is all about reciprocity, mutual support. Service delivery tends to be siloed. Whereas in communities, holistic is where everything comes together. Service delivery tends to focus on people's needs, whereas community building tends to focus on people's gifts. And service delivery is totally dependent on money. I know there's some incredibly dedicated people here who show up to work whether or not you get paid. But community is really totally dependent on relationships and trust. Two very different paths. Both are absolutely critical. But what I'd like to argue is there's no substitute for community when it comes to the things we care most deeply about. I think the first of those is the power to care for the earth. That we're not going to make it with climate change if it's just about green technology. People actually have to adopt it. And I think people only will if they feel some sense of connection with each other in the place they share. Some sense that collectively my actions are going to make a difference. Otherwise, what difference does it make if I don't act responsibly? I'm one person on this huge planet. But it's in community that we feel some sense of responsibility, some sense of accountability. I'd like to share a story from one of our neighborhoods in Seattle. This is the Bauer neighborhood. It's a neighborhood of about 5,000 people. Uh, the story is based on a program we developed um, out of the Department of Neighborhoods called the Neighborhood Matching Fund that provides a cash match from local government in exchange for the community's equal match of volunteer labor in support of community-initiated projects. There's a woman in, um, uh, in Ballard named Dervilla Gowan. She cared passionately about trees. She wanted to see trees up and down the streets of her neighborhood. Ballard at the time was the neighborhood that had the least number of street trees of any neighborhood in Seattle. They also had the least number of parks of any neighborhood outside of downtown. So Dervilla put notices in her church bulletin. She put them in the Ballard News Tribune. She um, uh, uh, put them in the corner grocery store, advertising for other people who shared her passion for street trees. And Dervilla tried to find somebody in every block in Ballard who shared her passion. 
And if nobody came forward, she'd go to that block and knock on every door until she convinced somebody they shared her passion for street trees. And then she got that person to come to a training say, uh, and sign a pledge form saying, I'll come to a training about how to plant and take care of the trees. I'll recruit my neighbors to do the same thing. She turned in all of her pledge forms with her matching fund application. And one day, trucks pulled into her neighborhood with 1,080 trees. They dropped them off at every block in Ballard. Dravilla knocked on the door of the block captain and said, the trees are here. Block captain knocked on the neighbor's doors. That day, over 1,000 people came out, planted trees up and down the streets. People felt incredibly empowered. Beginning of the day, there's no street trees. The end of the day, they had tree-lined streets. Look what we can do when we work together as a community. They still, we still have the least number of parks of any neighborhood in Seattle. So they walked around the neighborhood looking for potential park sites and had a hard time finding them because the neighborhood is pretty developed. They finally found this old rundown house that used to serve as a nursery. It was right in the business district. Property was overgrown. Huge public safety problem. Convinced our local council to buy the property for a park. City had some money to buy the property, but absolutely no money to design or build the park. So the neighbors did it themselves. Local landscape architect volunteered her service and worked with the other neighbors, and together they designed and built Baker Park, all with volunteers. This is some of the landscaping in the park. There were some beautiful old trees in the park, and one of them had died. They were trying to figure out how to remove it. And then one of the neighbors, who was Native American, had a better idea and carved it in place as a totem. And here's some of the detail. This group went on the next year, and they tore up all the asphalt around the school. They call it the Agrated Green Project. Much better for the environment. The water could percolate through the soil rather than having instant runoff. Much better for the kids and the neighbors. Now we do it around all our schools, but it's the kind of innovation that is much more likely to come out of community than out of bureaucracy. Here they are on the opening day celebrating the project, and the sedentary Sousa band is performing. It's a marching band that only plays while sitting down. <laughs> this is a, uh, a piece of property in the neighborhood that was planted as a street. There's houses on either side, but it was never developed because it's too steep. Cars could never make it to the top. So as a result, it just became overgrown. Huge problem with rats. The only thing that tried to go up were four-wheel drive vehicles. They come in the middle of the night, they race their engines, you know, uh, squeal their tires, challenge each other to make it to the top, drive the neighbors totally crazy. I thought the neighbors were mad because they went out with picks and shovels, dug through that heavy hard pan clay soil by hand, hauled those timbers up the side, terraced that whole problem hillside, and turned that problem property into, what, into a community garden. This is the group's most recent project. This is inside of another former house. So to commemorate the house, they built all the furniture out of cement. And at the dedication of this park, they unveiled a timeline that shows the 20 parks they built over the past 20 years, every one of them with volunteers. They've renaturalized natural areas. They're restoring a salmon estuary. They built ball fields. They built uh, playgrounds. They worked with the kids to build a skate park. 20 parks in 20 years. One neighborhood, all volunteer. They said, well, this is great. We've made our neighborhood a much better place, but we're concerned about what's happening to the planet. We're concerned about climate change. So they organized an all-volunteer group called Sustainable Ballard. And every summer for the past 12 years, they've had a Sustainable Ballard Fest, where they have music and food to bring people into the local park. And they have booths to educate neighbors about what they can do to reduce their carbon footprint. And the first booth you go to is the undriver's license station where you go and check all the ways you will not drive over the next month, 
And when you do, you get a laminated on driver's license. <coughs> Julia Fields, when I organize this, she says, I'm going to walk, I'm going to bike, I'm going to take transit, etc., etc. And when you get your own driver's license, it entitles you to drive the shuffle bus. This is like a Fred Flintstone mobile. It's going down the streets, gets everybody's attention, gets people thinking, what could I do to get out of my car? What could I do to reduce my carbon footprint? This is creating a movement now. All the neighborhoods around Ballard have organized their own all-volunteer sustainability groups. All the suburban communities around Seattle have done the same. We now have 67 of these all-volunteer groups, and collectively they call themselves scallops. Sustainable communities all over Puget Sound. And it all started with Dervilla Gowan in those street trees. There is incredible untapped power in our communities. Another unique power of community is the power to care for one another. I think with the economic crisis, we realize that. All we can really count on is one another. I was in Wadonga. And neighbors had come together and wanted to create a community garden. So they approached the local church, said, can we tear up your grass? They said, OK, uh, we want to put in a community garden. And uh, uh, they're trying to figure out how to build the uh, raised bed. So they contacted a local association, the Men's Shed. And the men built the raised beds. The whole community got involved in filling up the uh, raised beds with soil. They reached out to the Mutual Assistance Association for New Immigrants and Refugees. They were excited because they were able to grow food indigenous to their culture. The Senior Center found a role. They found a role for everybody. And as the crops grew, they realized there was a commercial kitchen in this church. They said, can we use your kitchen? They said, sure. So a local chef came up with the most amazing recipes, and the whole community came together to gather that produce and to prepare it. So the women's group, the local church, the high school student group got involved. Across the street is an institution for people with intellectual disabilities. They are no longer the people with disabilities. They are the community chefs. They are so proud to be cooking for the community. And they work together to prepare thousands and thousands of the most delicious, nutritious meals you can imagine for people who otherwise would have no food at all. That's the power of community. Another unique power of community is the power to prevent crime. You know, again, there's a role for agencies, there's a role for professionals. You probably don't want the communities enforcing the law, you want professionals doing that. But when it comes to preventing crime, there's absolutely no substitute for community. We spent way too many resources lining up the ambulances at the bottom of the cliff when community's job is to build the fence at the top. In my country, we spent more and more and more money in so-called public safety programs. We have more and more and more people behind bars, and people aren't feeling any more safe. We've forgotten about the role of community. This is in our Soto neighborhood. This is just south of Seattle, the warehouse and industrial area. Area, uh, the backs of the warehouses were covered with, with graffiti. There was garbage all along the tracks. And it's the first view that uh, commuters and tourists get of Seattle each day. It looked terrible, because it's how our light rail comes in. Mike Perringer here worked in the local factory. He was embarrassed about this image of his neighborhood. Mike had a great idea. He says, why don't we see the backs of the warehouses as potential canvases for murals? He called it the urban art corridor. But Mike had an even better idea. And he worked with our court system, and he asked the judges, could you offer the kids who get busted for graffiti an alternative sentence, where they could come and help us to create the murals? Not an easy decision for the kids, because it's like a job. You'd show up at work on time, you had to dress appropriately, you got life skills training, mentored by professional artists. But young people created every one of these murals. And we found that as long as the kids were involved in this program, 
Not one of them reoffended. The problem in Seattle is you can only paint outdoor murals three months a year because it's raining the other nine months. Uh, my, but Mike came up with another great idea, got a local warehouse to donate their space, and in there they create murals and four-byte sheets of plywood. They put those around construction sites to beautify the construction sites. It keeps the program sustainable over time. And now more than 1,500 murals have been created through this program, and more than 5,000 young people have participated. And you don't have to get busted to get into the program. We didn't want to create negative incentives. Right? Another unique power of community is the power to create great places. Uh, both Christ Church and Kobe are sister cities of Seattle, so you don't want to be our sister. I was in both places before the earthquakes and immediately afterwards, and also learned that the unique power of community in terms of recovering from disaster. This is their namesake, Christ Church Cathedral. Vacant lots all over downtown, where you know the central city, where the, the buildings have fallen, wasn't prepared for the level of devastation in many of the neighborhoods as well. But all over, people said, we need to find places now to come together as a community to support each other. And they'd lost their major gathering places. But they had these vacant lots everywhere. So community members came together to create gathering places, fantastic spaces. Right where the major hotel had collapsed in downtown Christchurch, they came together and all they had were a bunch of construction pallets. So they ended up building the Blue Pallet Pavilion. I was there opening day, just a fantastic space, full of greenery with a performance stage. And every time I go back to Christchurch, there's something happening there. There's band concerts. There's uh, poetry slams. Last time I was there, they're celebrating Holy Day, the, the Indian Festival of Color, throwing the colored flower at each other. They had another vacant lot, and all they had was a, uh, an old washing machine. They uh, fixed up speakers on the inside of that washing machine, and if you hook up your iPod and put in a couple quarters, you can play whatever dance music you want. And there in the center of all this devastation, people are dancing. They had another vacant lot where they whitewashed the wall and created a movie screen. You ride up in your bicycle and you hook it up to a generator. As long as you're biking, the movie plays. It's called Cycle Power Cinema, the kind of creativity that only comes out of community. They had another vacant lot they, uh, where people could come and write poetry. And they leave poetry. They do poetry readings here. And this poem in particular really got to me. Amidst the shards of glass and twisted steel, beside the fallen brick and scattered concrete, we began to understand that there is beauty in the broken. Strangers do not live here anymore. And how through that catastrophe, the people of Christchurch came to understand what's most important in their lives, each other. Prior to that, I think Christchurch is probably known as the most class-conscious city in New Zealand. The first question was often, where'd you go to school? Now the first question is, are you okay? How are you doing? But it's often a lesson we learn when it's too late. Margaret Wheatley said, whatever the question, community is the answer. I think it's also the answer to promoting health. There's studies that show that only about 15% of health outcomes can actually be attributed to healthcare professionals that in many ways our communities can have a much bigger impact on our health, on our mental health, on the behaviors that impact our health, on the social, economic, uh, physical, natural conditions that impact our health, sustaining the local economy, advancing social justice. No major social change in my country has ever come top down. 
Talk about the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the disability rights movement, the gay lesbian rights movement. Every major change has come bottom up. So, so without strong communities, we can't make change. And our very democracy is dependent on strong communities. I saw Robert Putnam's book sitting out there on the, on the shelf. And it's, how many of you know his work, Bowling Alone? Professor at Harvard University wrote the most depressing book for those of us who care deeply about community because he tracks the incredible breakdown of community life in North America over the past 50 years. As I travel around Australia, I see the same forces at work. Robert Putnam says there's fewer and fewer families eating dinner together. Fewer and fewer people belong to the traditional associations. Fewer and fewer people, except in Australia where you have to, fewer and fewer people voting. And he cites lots of reasons. I've added some of my own. But single-purpose land use used to be we'd live, learn, work, and play all in the same neighborhood and the same village. Now I've created single-purpose places, bedroom communities where you just go to sleep. We're losing our main street to malls. We drive a half hour to the mall to shop. We might commute an hour to work. In a sense, we have many different communities. In a sense, we have no community at all because we don't bump into the same people over and over and over again. How we're increasingly mobile, more time working. Fear has been documented as a key thing breaking down community in so many places. The electronic screens, Robert Putnam said the biggest thing breaking down community is television. People say they don't have time for community, and yet they spend an average of three or four hours a day in front of the television set. He wrote this book about 15 years ago, so now I think he would add the video games, the Facebook, and all the others. Increasing globalization, where decisions and products are made further and further away from where we live. And I think most distressing to me is the very agencies, local government, many not-for-profit organizations that are trying to help our communities have inadvertently contributed to the breakdown of the very communities they're trying to help. Where we have more and more and more professionals doing for communities what communities used to do better for themselves. And where the strength of every agency is to organize into silos with a laser-like focus on their expertise, on their discipline, on their mission. It's important, but it makes it absolutely impossible to work with communities. We've created one set of silos for young people, another for old people, another for people with disabilities, another for new immigrants and refugees. Everybody's in their own box, and you can't build community in boxes. It's a question of who's serving whom when our communities are having to organize themselves the way the professionals are organized, rather than the professionals being organized the way our communities are organized. So I've totally impressed everybody. I talked about how there's no substitute for community, and it's going to hell. Right? So I want to talk about a few of the things agencies can do of all kinds, from the local government, not-for-profits, the kind of change we can make in order to rebuild community. Because I'm not one of those tea party. You know, I think over time, we've had more and more and more services and less and less and less community. And I'm not one of those Tea Party guys from the United States who thinks the answer is fewer agencies. The answer is more community. So I think the, the challenge is how do we get the best of both? Because we absolutely need the professionals, and we also need the community. And it's really tough to bring the two together. I think it requires three paradigm shifts on the part of agencies of all types. And the first one is to get out of the silos and start focusing on whole places, to think about how our functions come together in a neighborhood, in a town. In the city of Seattle, we had 32 departments in our local government. We have our county government with all its departments. We have our state government with its departments. 
our federal government with its departments. We've got a Port of Seattle. We've got a school board. We have three transit agencies. And we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of not-for-profit organizations, each one on its own trying to reach out and empower the community. They are being empowered to death. There aren't enough nights in the year to go to all those meetings. And it's not the way anybody experiences their community. They don't experience it in the silo. They experience it's in community that everything comes together. So if we're going to be good partners with community, we need to figure out how do we come together as one set of agencies in a place. One of the ways we did that in Seattle is we created the first ever Department of Neighborhoods. Uh, first time we'd organized the department the way the people in the community were organized. We organized a, a series of little city halls, 13 storefront offices, where people can do business with government right in their own neighborhood, across all layers of government and across all the not-for-profit organizations. But the key resource we have in each of the little city halls is somebody we call a coordinator. Somebody who works for the Department of Neighborhoods, but it's clear they're working for all agencies and all community. They often refer to themselves as overt double agents. Really clear they're working for both government and the community. Their job just to help bring the two together. I just did some work in, uh, in the uh, Kootenays and, uh, in, in British Columbia, and there the, all the uh, human service, all the not-for-profit organizations joined forces and formed a cooperative. And they start sharing their resources. And jointly, they hired their own coordinators who are more place-based. I tell you, it's a whole lot more cost-effective than every agency fending for itself. And it's so much more community-friendly. Second major paradigm shift is instead of always driving the agenda from the top, to support community-driven initiatives. So the story about, uh, in Seattle, one of the ways we did that is we created a neighborhood planning program where we actually empowered neighborhoods to hire their own planner who was accountable to the community, but only once they brought all the different interest groups in the neighborhood together. Through that process, we involved 30,000 people in the development of 38 bottom-up plans. It had incredible results. We had over 5,000 recommendations. People voted to tax themselves an additional $464 million dollars for improvements that they'd asked for in their plans. Democracy works. Every place else, people are thinking of themselves as taxpayers. Here, people thought of themselves as citizens because it was their idea. But I think more importantly, the community also took a lot of responsibility for implementing those plans themselves. I want to share a story. I think most of you are more from not-for-profits, so I want to share a story of the same approach being taken by a not-for-profit. This is our senior services at King County. Uh, King County is the next layer up from the city of Seattle, so it includes uh, Seattle, all the suburban cities, and unincorporated rural areas all, over a huge geographic area. Senior Services in is in charge of all the senior centers and all the senior programs, like Meals on Wheels and all those programs. Denise Klein is the head of Senior Services. She came to me and said, Jim, we've got a terrible problem. Every year we're facing larger and larger budget cuts, and our quick population is quickly aging. She said, we can't just do business as usual. We need to figure out a new way of working with our community. So we organized gatherings all over King County. Uh, we had 15 gatherings in urban neighborhoods and in rural small towns and had about 100 people at each gathering sitting around tables like this, just like you guys, except they were a lot older. They were uh, largely boomers and older people who were attracted to these gatherings. And at the gathering, Denise started off with a really great exercise. She asked people, close your eyes and think about when you are first old. It really shook up people like me who've never wanted to think about that. Right? 
for the first time, I'm thinking, what's it like to be old? How am I fitting into my neighborhood? What kind of support do I need? What kind of contributions am I making? So here people are thinking about that question. I love this woman's expression. She's not quite sure she wants to go there. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy's having a good time with it. And then when people are in that frame of mind, I ask them to think about what would your neighborhood need to be like, both physically and socially, to, age you, to allow you to age in the way you would like? What would a senior-friendly community look like? And then I gave each table 20 minutes to collectively draw their vision of a senior-friendly community. And then each table got a minute to present their vision to the room as a whole. And then I had a graphic artist who took those uh, ideas from each table and created a composite vision for the neighborhood or town as a whole. And she had a pretty easy job because the, the themes were so similar from one table to the next. But what was really interesting to me was that not one of the themes that was identified by the participants was something currently being done by senior services. Showed the importance of instead of always pushing our programs, to step back and listen. Find out what it is, what it is people care about. So first thing we heard, right now we spend a whole lifetime getting skills and knowledge and building relationships. We're just valued for our needs. We're just valued as clients. We want the opportunity to contribute. Second thing we heard, right now in senior services, all we see is a bunch of old people. It is so boring. We want to be able to interact with young people. Third thing we heard, we spent a whole lifetime screwing up the environment. We want to give back. We want to live in a place that's green, that's sustainable. Fourth thing we heard, right now, every stage of our life, we have to move to a different place. We want to be able to age among the people we know and love and the places we're familiar with. We want to be able to age in place. So we want, we want universal design. We want good transportation. We want good access to services. We said, well, you don't have any additional resources to do any of this. What could you take responsibility for? And one at a time, people stood up and advocated their, their cause, and all kinds of projects resulted. So one group came together to organize a neighborhood walking map. Another group organized a senior dating service in West Seattle. We uh, have three different groups planning for senior co-housing. We had one gathering for the gay lesbian community, and they came up with a whole series of projects. We uh, organized four virtual retirement villages where people in the neighborhoods are supporting their elders to stay in their homes. Every, just about every group had an interest in lifelong learning, so they came together for, to work together on a website to capture all the opportunities for uh, lifelong learning. One neighborhood, the elders came together with the young people to create a trail system through their woods to get together every weekend for maintenance parties. Out of this, we organized four time banks where people are sharing their skills with each other. And a lot of it is between young people and older people. Younger per person helping an older person stay in their home, drive them to a doctor's appointment, teach them how to use a computer. An older person helping a young person uh, learn a trade, learn a craft, making them a great meal. In my neighborhood, somebody said the strength of our community is it's many different cultures. So they organized a world dance party. And we had people show up at the first party from 12 different cultures, each one teaching their dance. We learned 12 kinds of dance in one night. And people were there from all cultures. People were there from, oh, she was our DJ. And people were there from absolutely all ages. 
And then we organized the summit. And we brought 350 people together from all these gatherings with our elected officials, with the funders. And we said, here's, what, here's our vision, and here's what we're doing to achieve our vision, and here's what we need from you, because we can't expect community to do everything. There is also a role for agencies and professionals. So we need help from you in, in creating more, uh, more walkable communities, better transportation options. And they were very responsive because there were 350 people in the room and because they were putting their own resources. They cared that much into achieving their vision. And then the third paradigm shift is instead of always focusing on the needs of the community, and that's important. We often say agencies need needs. It's a good thing there are needs in our community. We'd all be out of work. And it's a good thing we have professionals because there's some things communities don't do so well. But often in our desire to help communities, the first thing we do is a needs assessment. Figure out what are all the problems? How can we be most helpful? It's a very legitimate exercise. The problem is, though, we often stop there and we forget about this map of the same place, which are all the strengths of the community. And I would argue that this is the basis for community empowerment. If the, we're looking at the community as nothing but people with, with needs, all the powers with the professionals. And there's real, really no value in partnering with the community. It's when the community is focusing on their strengths that we can do amazing things together. A key resource we have in every community are the individuals who live there. And I'd like to argue that absolutely every member of our community, absolutely everybody, absolutely everybody has gifts to give to our community. I like to think of them as three kinds of gifts. One are gifts of the head, that person's knowledge. Gifts of the heart, that person's passions. And gifts of the hands, that person's skills. Absolutely everybody's got these. But the problem in our society, and again, it's largely the professionals, are putting labels on most of our population that label people not by their gifts, but by their needs. We use terms like homeless. Unemployed, poor person, non-English speaking, single parent, addict, offender, old person, at-risk youth, disabled, to describe most people in our society. And we just focus on what people are missing, they become clients in a service system. We focus on people's gifts, they become citizens in our community. And I'm not denying that people have needs. People require some services. Everybody in this room has some needs, and everybody in this room requires some services. But I think most people in this room would be identified primarily by your gifts, and most people outside this room would be identified primarily by what they're missing. The term disabled really drives me crazy. We invent more disabilities all the time. And think about people solely in terms of their disability and miss out on all their abilities. How many people in this room have no disability? I see some eyeglasses. My disability is my memory gets worse every year. When I'm applying for a job, I don't say, I'm disabled, please hire me. I try to think of some gifts I have. And yet there's a huge growing section of our population that we think of solely in terms of their disability. We started up a uh, program in Seattle called the Neighborhood Matching Fund, again, to build on people's strengths, to encourage communities to start thinking about their strengths rather than always quote, adopting that map that we've created of them, of their needs. To start thinking about what communities can do best. And through that program, 
We have supported over 5,000 community self-help projects over the past 25 years. People coming together to create 95 organic community gardens with 7,000 urban gardeners that collectively donate 15 tons of organic produce to our food banks every year. Every one of our playgrounds in Seattle, both in our parks and our schools, has been redeveloped by the community. New parks all over the city built by neighbors. Public art of all kinds all over the city of Seattle. Renovated facilities. But I want to talk again about a not-for-profit and how they took this approach and what shifted from needs to strengths. Neighborhood House. This is at High Point. This is a social housing community in Seattle, a couple thousand residents from all over the world. Very diverse. And are probably the most labeled community you've seen. Every one of those labels I talked about you can find in High Point. Neighborhood House is one of, one of many agencies operating out of High Point. They got a grant to create a healthy community. They, uh, so they put up posters encouraging people to come out to a, uh, an event to, uh, about creating a healthy community. Nobody showed up. So they did the sickest thing in the world. They started paying people to come to their meetings. They had a paid advisory group. And they sat down with them and said, what are, what are some of the things that would create a healthy community? They came up with a long list of things to do, but they were all things for the professionals to do because that's how everything gets done in High Point. There were no additional resources. They asked me to come in. I, I met with them, and I said, could you get your neighbors involved, your friends? They said, well, God, they really don't care that much about nutrition or fitness. I said, what do you care about? They said, we just want to create an awesome community. I said, really? Would people come out to a gathering about how to create an awesome community? They said, if we had good food. I said, I just have a limited budget. I could pay for the ingredients. Could you make the food? And they were so proud to bring food from absolutely all over the world, to bring their own dishes and share them with each other. And they, they said if we had good entertainment, people would come. I said, what kind of entertainment could you provide? And there was a senior who said, I belong to a senior line dance group. We'll come and perform. So they showed up, and some of them even had walkers. But the music was so contagious, young people jumped up and said, oh, we do this with you every month. And then they said if we had raffle prizes, people would come. And I said, what could you raffle? Somebody said, I do great knitting. I'll make a stocking cap. Somebody else said, I make a great apple pie. Somebody else said, I, 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 I like to garden. I'll pledge a couple hours of gardening. We had so many raffle prizes. We were raffling for a half hour. And then I asked them to do a little brainstorming about what kind of measures could create an awesome high point community. And I said, if you want any of these things to happen, stand up and advocate. Get other people to join you. So here they are brainstorming their ideas. This woman said, I just moved here from China. I'd like to start up a tea house as a way to create a gathering place where we can build a sense of community. And there were some small elders in the corner who said, we don't drink tea, we drink coffee. She said, okay, we'll have a tea and coffee house. So they got together to plan that. This guy said, I don't like to exercise, but I'm a terrible organizer. If somebody helped me organize the classes, I'd be happy to lead exercise classes. This young woman said, I love to play soccer, but because of my religion, I can't play outdoor soccer. I'd like to start up an indoor soccer league. This woman said, this is an incredible multicultural feast we made tonight. That's our gift. I'd like to start up a multicultural catering company. It's a way to make some income, but also a way to share our culture with the larger community. And this guy, Solomon, he was the most poised of all. He just stood up, he's 11 years old. He sit up there and says, all my friends and all the other neighborhoods, they have parks and playgrounds. I want a playground. The swing set. He tugged at everybody's heartstrings. 
There were some elders in the corner who said, we do regular walks around the neighborhood for exercise. How about, and we get tired. How about if we create a park with a bench and a swing set? Six months later, they came together to create that. And the housing authority said, you can't do a, a swing set because of health and safety. And they said, well, Solomon's counting out. We've got to build the swing set. So here's the swing set. And here's Solomon. So happy. Yeah. Now, not all those projects happened, but a bunch of others did. They started up a community orchard. They started up a community garden. They started up a craft group. And, and these, these residents are teaching each other crafts. And now they are making sweaters for Nicholsville, which is a homeless encampment. Low-income people watching out for people worse off than they are. That's the power of community. That's the power of doing things in a very different kind of way. I think one of the challenges with our work, and somebody raised this earlier, is the funders. Always holding us accountable. Why know what kind of results are we going to get? It's the hardest thing with this approach. Because if we're doing our work right, if we're really doing it in a way that's community-driven, if the community's really in control, it should affect all kinds of indicators. There are all kinds of studies that have been done that show that the, uh, that the, that the, the, the stronger social capital you build, the safer people are, the healthier they are, the more resilient they are. So what do we measure? Right? We worked hard, we built it, we fixed up this, we, we built this new community garden, and the crime rate's gone down. Is it because we built the garden? Who knows? What do we take credit for? I think we spend way too much time and way too many resources often measuring things that don't count. I was raised in Iowa, so I love this Iowa farm proverb. You don't make the, fa- the hog fatter by weighing it. And I love the Einstein quote. Not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. I was just in uh, St. Kilda yesterday, and it reminded me of some signs of, of a strategy they took a few years ago. And they said, you know, the only thing that really matters is whether people are happy. Think about it. What else is important? So they trained people how to be volunteer smile spies. And they walk down the street, and they capture other people's eyes, and they see what percentage of people smile back at them. And then they have a formula they've worked out. They figured out how many smiles per hour are in each neighborhood. And then they post traffic signs to show how many smiles per hour are in that neighborhood. And it's the only indicator I've seen that's actually changing conditions. Because no neighborhood wants to be seen as unfriendly. So the numbers keep going up. This guy in a park, he's so happy. He's up to 10. And this guy's really happy. He's up to 14. So i just like to conclude by thanking you all. I know this is hard work. It's tough times. But you're the ones who are making the difference in our society. You're the ones who are putting smiles on the people's faces. But I think there's so much, so much more we can do. This is an incredibly scary time for me. I see the economic crisis everywhere. We see climate change. And the democratic crisis where people are thinking themselves as taxpayers rather than citizens. We're facing enormous crises. But what gives me hope is there are people like you in every corner of the world, every place I go, places I least expect it, like Singapore, where people are working hard to make change. That's what gives me hope, people like you. So I just want to end by thanking you for what you do and encourage you to keep on because you're part of a huge movement, and I think together we're going to make change. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.